Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Pod Strickland. This is episode 141. I'm your host, Shwini Pooh, and I am joined in a very, very special all-Indian pod. Uh, but I am joined first and foremost by my esteemed co-host, Stacy. That's at StacyPat89. Stacy, what's going on? Uh, doing great. Still coming down from... Uh epic experience in state college i'm surprised i still have my voice but uh surprised you still have your liver <laughs> well I, I don't know to be determined but uh, <laughs> doing pretty well good and then yeah uh, i'm hopped up on uh, on coffee because i just drove for six hours <laughs> coming back from state college so that drive is so fucking miserable too um but uh i i'm happy you enjoyed the game i'm happy you survived by the way i was I, I actually have nothing but great things to say about Penn State fans. Um, it's the best. I, it's the best away game experience I've ever had. Yeah, it, it was. It was that. I mean, like I would say, their RV lot, like compared to the golf course, it's even more expansive. Way better. And I mean, if you don't hang out with like drunk college kids, like most of the fans were, like you know, like they give you a little bit of shit, but they're pretty friendly and uh, it, was, it was a blast. Nice. Uh, but we are also joined uh, by. Rohan Dang, he is the co-founder of Cerebro Sports, and he is the vice president of data and analytics. You can follow him on Twitter at RohanDang19. Rohan, what's going on? Not much. How are you guys doing? Uh, Football-wise, I'm in a good place. Basketball-wise, I am down in the dumps because the Knicks have decided to be the most annoying team in the history of mankind somehow. Um, it's not very complex. The Knicks starters suck ass, and the Knicks bench is apparently better than the 96 Bulls. So it's it's very interesting watching them play right now. Uh, but, you know, look, we wanted to have you on because your data also bears this out, how just insane the discrepancy is right now between, uh, between the two groups, uh, and it bears out player by player. But, uh, you know, I guess... Before we dive into that, do you want to explain a little bit uh, about what you do and kind of like, uh, you know, the metrics and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, sounds good. So at Cerebro, we're basically a quantitative player evaluation service. We want to help evaluate the game of basketball using a side of the space that hasn't really been tapped into yet. And that's the numbers and the stats. Um, so that's kind of the overall mission at Cerebro. And obviously one of the core things we use to help evaluate players are these group of metrics. Um, which two of the metrics are overall scores that are just telling you how good a player is relative to his competition and just as a base unit. And then we also have five skill-specific scores, which can really help you like archetype players and figure out what exactly are they doing on the court. Nice. Uh, yeah, w one question I'd have real quick. So in terms of, there's a lot of all-in-one stats, right? Um, you know, PER, yeah. I think, was one of the first ones, but then you have Raptor at 538. BPM obviously does that. There's... Um, you know, RAPM, real plus minus on, on ESPN as well. Um, you know, what, um, you know, what do you kind of look, for? there's a lot of shortcomings to those, right? 
Um, what are some of the kind of adjustments you guys make to, um, you know, kind of mitigate some of those things? And, you know, what do, your, what do you kind of emphasize when, when you create that kind of a rating? Yeah, no, exactly. So uh, I think one of the key things that we always say with our company is we want to start with stats, but definitely not stop with stats. Uh, we don't feel like these metrics and the numbers either are just like the end all for the entire story. Our goal is really to just help you evaluate the entire space of basketball because there's so many players in so many different leagues nowadays. Um, so we just kind of want to help you parse through that data up front, and then you can continue to do what you're already doing with your, you know, eye test scouting, going to games, talking to coaches and things of that nature. Uh, so I think one of the things that we're really upfront about is that while we want to start with stats, we acknowledge that that's not the end all. And we don't want you to lean on our metrics as like that is what a player is, because it, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, doesn't show up on the stats sheet. Um, so that's one big thing that we focus on. And I think another thing that really separates our core uh, group of metrics from a lot of the other metrics that are out there are the ingredients that we're using to create these metrics. We're only using box score ingredients, which are basic basically the lowest common denominator of any basketball game. You can find box scores for pretty much every single level. And I think that's what really gives our suite an advantage is we can grab and analyze a lot larger net of data relative to most other metrics, because a lot of other metrics need, you know, tracking data or play-by-play data or, you know, very specific on-off numbers or things of that nature. And tracking data is also expensive, right? So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I've, I've found, like, some of the tracking data, just sometimes it doesn't, like, at least the NBA is stuff like sometimes i'm just like i don't i'm not sure if i well th- those are some of the labeling things right i think ron you're you're referring to the raw you know 30 frames per second stuff right or or no for me yeah yeah I'm, yeah I'm yeah no just about tracking data like you're talking about the raw files right where they have 30 frames per second of game time or yeah no i mean honestly just anything even the the, the tracking data that we do see on like nbastats.com uh right, yeah. even things of that nature if you're trying to build metrics using those ingredients you can't do that uh at the high school level because you're just not going to have access to that level of data uh high yeah. school or internationally yeah and to shwini's point yeah like um i think this has been prez prez's big pet peeve but a few people have mentioned this i think pd's talked about this too uh, fellow, he's he's a fellow cerebro guy but um you know the, a lot of the you know if you watch the shots that are labeled as wide open or open, uh, you know, those aren't always correctly labeled or you know, they can most definitely. It's it's also like I feel like um, there are games where the Knicks play terrible defense and they give up like twenty five wide open threes, and I'm like, they play terrible defense. And there'll be games where I think they play good defense and they give up like thirty wide open threes, and I'm like, that makes no fucking sense. Um, so stuff like that always kind of is interesting for me. Um, but before we continue, uh, I'm gonna do uh the the whole uh you know the thing i have to do that i always forget to do which is to announce that the strickland has a patreon uh which you can subscribe to uh if you subscribe to the patreon uh i would recommend subscribing to at least the six six dollars here that gets you access to pod strickland on fridays that gets you access to jeremy and mine and drew's mailbag uh it also gets you access to the strickland discord uh, and you can talk hoops with the entire Strickland community, um, which has been really fun, actually. Uh, it's actually kind of helped push the pod in interesting directions and giving us uh, kind of ideas to go with. Um, but uh, on top of that, there are also further tiers. There's a $9 tier, which gets you access to uh, Jack Huntley and Matthew Miranda's weekly articles, uh, arguably two of the best writers in all of the Knicks first and all of you know the 
blogosphere, I would say, uh, for basketball. Just two awesome writers. Uh, also, you get access to my solo pod, where if you really want to hear me yell about more stuff, I do that on there, too. Um, there's also further tiers, $15, $50, $100, so on and so forth. Additional benefits like watch parties. We did a watch party for the super awesome Knicks game against the Hornets. That wasn't a miserable experience, but at least we got to share that misery together. Uh, it's fun. Uh, so that's my ad read for today. Uh, anyway, back to the podcast. Um, all right, look, let, let's just dive into uh, what we're seeing with the Knicks because, you know, you've shared some of the data with us here, but the drop-off from the start of the season for the starters to now, I mean, it, it's not even just like it. It it's step. It, it hasn't even like kind of found a bottom yet. It just keeps getting worse uh, in the data, and I'm not sure if that's like really how it's playing out for me when I watch them play. But, um, you know, like it just seems that they, Rohan, I talked with you about this, but like it feels like all that happens with them is somebody gets hot. And if somebody gets hot, that'll like help them kind of stay afloat. But as soon as that somebody loses, like, you know, they, they cool off, they don't do anything. And, and they're not really leveraging their, the advantages that they're creating for others. Uh, there's no like multiplier effect. I, I think that's kind of like what we were talking about. They're not like building and there's no like cascading effect of the advantages being created. And I think like, look, I, I've, I was pretty critical of Kemba, but, uh, you know, I think this starts with Julius. Like, I think he's really let himself down. I think he's really let the team down uh, at various times this season. I don't know what's going on with him in terms of effort and energy. I know he just had a kid, but, like, I I can't really – I have no concept or understanding of how that would impact him, um, and I can't really just adjust for that. Uh, and I also think that's, like, not really – <laughs> like a, a useful thing to discuss when it's happening in road games and stuff like that, uh, where presumably you wouldn't have his kid with him. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I just think that when I'm watching this guy play right now, I'm watching a guy who's like, he's like struggling to adapt to the fact that he's playing with a more talented roster. And so we don't need him to do like the, you know, Julius LeBron Randall impression that he was doing last year. Um, the Knicks need him to trust players more frequently on the team. I think that he's has a tendency to, um, I'm not sure how to verbalize this, but like he's not the only, like when he's passing right now, he's passing to try to create an assist opportunity. Um, I don't think it's inherently selfish. I think he just doesn't trust the other guys in his team to capitalize on a smaller advantage. And, you know, like there's no like swing, swing, swing possessions that he's kind of trusting to happen, right? It's all like, okay, I'm gonna try and draw the tr- the triple team, and then as soon as that triple team almost collapses on me, then I will kick it out to a wide open shooter. But he's not. It's not. There's no flow that's c- being created from it. It's very stagnant off ball too. Has to be said. And uh, his mid range sorcery from last year has cooled off a bit so far this year. So. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. I don't know if that all bears on the numbers or if that makes sense, but uh, I guess, you know, whoever wants to take that from there, I, I just got to say, like, I just think that he needs to adapt to having a more talented roster and trust these guys a little bit more. And like, 
you know, I mean, I thought in the Hornets game, he started off playing like this awesome selfless brand of ball. And then he came back in in the second quarter and it was like, okay, well, I got to get my points up now. And it's like, dude, fuck off. You got your money. You got paid. Like, there's no real excuse for me watching him to like feel obligated to hit arbitrary statistical threshold anymore at this point. Yeah, I mean, I'll just chime in. I do think there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing. Yep. Because I do think there are, like, is it, is Randall's, is Randall kind of taking up too much space, metaphorically speaking, in the offense? Or, um, or is it the case that the other players are deferring too much? I think it's at least, uh, I, I think it's close to 50 50, right? Um, because there are, there, games, have been... there are games where you see, like, too much, like, we, I mean, I've, like, you know, I've said this about Kemba. We both talked about this. Like, there are games where Kemba's just, like, brings the ball off the floor and, like, toss it to Julius and doesn't do anything else, right? Um, I thought the Charlotte game was not one of those. I thought I thought that was one where, like, Julius pretty obviously kind of just decided, like, oh, I got to get mine. And it's just, I don't know, man. His, like, his defensive energy and shit, like, he just seems, like, way more focused on, like, arguing. Like, he's, like, it feels like I'm watching somebody who, like, look, he was all NBA last year, deserved it. Uh, like all the awards and accolades he got last year, he deserved all of them. But now it feels like he's come back to the season and he's like, well, why am I not getting these calls? Why am I not getting this? And it's like, instead of focusing on the fucking game and the opponent at hand, there's kind of like this arrogance almost where it was like, oh, Miles Bridges is trying super hard on me and I'm not getting whistle. Like, this is annoying. And it's like, dude, yeah, it's annoying. You know what else is annoying? You fucking getting destroyed by Miles Bridges and not really even competing at times defensively sorry go ahead Stevie. no 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 that, but that, all i was saying is yeah i mean it's definitely a mix of the two um but how like how much is it i think that these guys are wired a certain way where it's like i have like i think he's still figuring out what it means to be a team leader right so if and, and it's not just kemba who defers by the way um, yeah yeah he has moments where he he goes into inactivity fournier does that um Mitch is always active on the glass, so that's that's a little bit out of but um but you've seen we've seen lots of players, with the exception of Derek Rose, uh, which this could be a good argument for putting him on the starting lineup, it does seem like players themselves tend to defer more to Randall when they're on the court with him. That includes players who are otherwise aggressive. Um quickly comes to mind. I think it's true of Burks to a good extent. Um so is Randall is it because Randall is is some kind of is like that? Because I think I've seen him plenty of times try to try to get others to do something, and then they'll like give him the ball back with twelve seconds that's on the shot clock. Actually, they burn a bunch of seconds. Like, what is he supposed to do? And then if Tibbs tells him take charge, to him that might mean kind of doing more, right? Um, and kind of trying to to be the guy. Um, I, I, Ron, I'd be really curious for your thoughts because it could be also that the Knicks fans are overrating our offensive talent at this point. Um, and, you know, the reality is it isn't that much of an upgrade. Uh, I'd also be curious if, like, you know, I mean, I know there are metrics to kind of um, evaluate ball dominance and all of that. But um, but just how much, you know, is Julius kind of, does he have these black hole tendencies as much as we're seeing? Or is it pretty typical for lead options? Yeah. Um, so I think my first, and it's honestly a question back to you guys, and it's, along the nature of this chicken or the egg idea and it's how much of this falls back onto Tibbs. And that's kind of one of my big things is maybe kind of like you guys said, if Tibbs is telling Randall to be the leader, 
that might be one thing. And maybe Tibbs is wanting Randall to take all these shots and possessions, um, in which case that's not the best game plan to go in with, knowing the talent that you guys have on the court. And I know that's something that we had discussed uh, when I came on the pod in the preseason, and this was more from the angle of Kemba. But the idea was, is Kemba gonna, is Kemba coming in going to ruin the touches that RJ might have or kind of the flow that already existed with the team last year? And um, Tibbs is definitely someone who, I, again, I'm, I'm quickly tossing the, the seat back to you guys, but I'm just wondering how you guys feel about how he's handling this situation. Is he maybe trying to do the same thing too much or – is that, you know, that's kind of what you got, got you guys here last year anyways. So, so I think that there's a few things going on. Um, let's be honest. I don't think this is like a bad thing. I don't think this is like an app, like a thing where the team hates each other or something like that, but there's like a lot of dick measuring going on in that starting lineup, I think. Um, and I think like guys are trying to like, you know, to Stacy's point, guys are trying to figure out kind of like how to play off of each other. And, you know, look, Fournier, was a first or second option in Orlando for a long time. So adjusting to being the third or fourth option is a big adjustment for him. Kemba is probably adjusting to a reality of like, you know, he's more diminished. He's talked about it. He's adjusting. I think he feels like he should maybe try to be more of a third or fourth option. Um, But like, he doesn't know how to do that. He doesn't know how to play off ball like that. I don't think at times. Um, and quite frankly, like, I don't think, like, I just don't think he's necessarily in what he is as a player. I don't know if you're going to get the value you want out of him if he's trying to be a third or fourth option. I would prefer if he's just more aggressive and plays like a first or second option with this team. Um, and I think the other thing that's going on is RJ Barrett, probably his work, he worked on a bunch of stuff in the offseason. I think he wants to show that off, but I think he's lost his way a little bit and he's forcing up bad shots at the rim now when, because he's not getting a lot of touches. And when he gets touches, he wants to get shots up. Uh, I think that there's a lot of that guys feeling hesitant. I think, I think Fournier has actually, he's like pump faking on shots he should take because it feels like he's like, Oh, well I need to play more like a team oriented player. Like I need to be more of a kind of ball mover and a connecting piece. And it's, and it, he's just like, he, he hasn't found that rhythm. And I think he's forcing up, weird shots at times because of it because he's kind of dribbling into stuff that he just shouldn't and he's also just passing up on a lot of looks that i don't want him to pass up on at all um so i think there's a lot of that going on and then i think what happens is they let that shit offensively impact their energy on defense and you see that a lot like i look i'm gonna be flat out like i think julius is the biggest culprit of it i mean he's talked about it openly he's talked about like i need to be better with my energy i need to do a better job leading this team I thought he did do a good job of that uh, in the Philly game last week. I actually thought in that weird and kind of embarrassing performance against Milwaukee that him and Mitch were uh, let down by the other three starters. I didn't think that they – oh, shit, sorry. Um, but I, I don't think that they – I thought they got let down is what I'll say. Um, and But like this, you know, this last game against Charlotte, he was just really bad, and I thought that he – the way he played when the starters came back into the second half, second quarter impacted how the starters played the rest of the way. Uh, they, they had started off the game really connected on defense, energetic, making closeouts, like making the extra rotations, uh, and, and also just like sharing the ball, uh, like really doing a good job of, of moving around. And as soon as he came in and the rest of the starters came in the second quarter, that was all gone. So like to me, 
all of this stuff. I, I don't know how much of this on Tibbs. People will say a lot. I, what I will say is this. I don't think you can look at how the bench plays and then you can look at how the starters play and tell me he wants Julius to play the way Julius is playing. And and I will say this. I think Tibbs is like, he knows that he, Julius has to play differently. And there's always like a political nature to this stuff, right? It's not as easy as just telling Julius like, hey, dude, play more like a team player. Like he's constantly talked about like, you know, the, the game tells you what to do. You've got to hit the open man. It's an easy game. You have to trust each other. I don't think those comments are. I don't think he's just saying those things to say them. I do think that he's. He, I, I do think some of that is like pointed at Julius. It's pointed at a lot of guys. I think he was. I mean, he was. He basically told. He, literally, there's a clip of it on YouTube. Uh, or not on YouTube. On Twitter, sorry. Of him in the middle of the Charlotte game telling RJ to wake the fuck up. Because he was getting destroyed by Hayward and just like on basic back cuts, which has been a problem for him all year. I think there's a lot of just like weird kind of lack of trust. That's with that group. Um, and it's, it's impacting their effort and energy collectively. And they need to turn it around because, you know, it is night and day right now watching them. And then you watch the, the bench who is playing like this. Like there's no, I mean, I tweeted this out, but there's like, there's no joy right now in how the starters are playing. It's not like a collective unit. That is finding like, like real pleasure in playing for each other and with each other. Whereas when you watch the bench, like it is like uh, unbridled joy, you know, in, in in so many ways, the way they play, and that is like pride in what they do, but also pride in like like when Obi gets a dunk, you got like quickly going crazy, right? Like stuff like that. Um, you know, I don't know how what the the value, and you know, sometimes it's like, well, you know, if fucking you're making shots i'm sure everybody in the starting lineup would be happy but like i i do think there's something to be said of just like developing a chemistry uh and you know every year is different every group is different i think it'll take some time but like i'm still relatively optimistic about this team but i will say i do think that shuffling some of the lineups um might be a better solution than to just keep running this out there and expecting it to get better. But I, I've talked for a long time there, so I'll shut the fuck up and let you guys, uh, and let Stacy kind of get his thoughts also on this question that you threw out there. Yeah, I, mean, I think the point about the bench is good, also because the bench does have a player who does tend to be more ball-dominant uh, in Derrick Rose. Um, and it's interesting because that ball-dominance actually amplifies um, you know, some of the shortcomings, or sorry, it mitigates the shortcomings or uh, of, of IQ and Burks while also actually helping them thrive, right? Um, we've seen what the bench unit looks without Rose, and it's not as good. When you ask just IQ to be the guy, um, at least last year, that was a role he kind of struggled with. This year, I think he's been a little bit better at it, um, but he's still developing. And Burks, um, you know, he, he predetermines. He's not a, a, an on-the-fly decision-maker, really. Um, that's not to say he can't pass, but, um, you know, this isn't someone who really is good at adjusting and reading defenses as much, right? I think the good passes he has is a little bit, it's simpler reads and it's where it's predetermined. Um, also but, sometimes off of, like, I think he's a good passer when advantages are created for him and he can attack. Yeah. Him. And again, it's, a, and that's a simple read, right? Where it's, yep. it's not reacting to something. It's not putting the, giving the defense something, seeing how they react and kind of going from there. Uh, which is Randall and Rose are really the only two players on this team who are very good at that. Uh, Fournier, to perhaps a lesser extent, RJ still getting used to it. Uh, but what I'll say is, um, 
yeah, I don't think it's all Tibbs. Um, <clears throat> but I also think, like, I don't think he's telling them that they need to, to defer to this. But um, but I also don't think Randall is, try, like, you know, the kind of things that you were saying. I don't think he, he cares about getting his numbers. I feel like at times it's probably like if we want to win and nobody else is doing some, anything, I have to be the guy. I think when guys are going off, like, he's happy to share the ball. Um so, so, so that's that's one thing where I, I don't, and I don't know what the fix is for that. If that's just kind of his lizard brain, you know, when things start to go bad, he 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 has he feels like that's the best way to help the team. But I do think that's what he's doing. The other thing I'll say is with Rose, um, one thing that really helps is even though he is a guy who at his best is putting his head down and getting the rim or creating his own shot, I still think that's what he's best at on offense. He's he's a solid passer, and he is better at those kind of. Uh, decisions when you know there's complexity um the other thing i will say is it's it's transition and speed that is the biggest criticism i would have of randall is when he like and it's not an excuse to i mean it's it's not um he doesn't really have a good excuse because i've seen him get out and be a load in transition and he's not lebron james but he's 250 pounds he's quite fast when he's coming in the open court defenses get scrambled and that opens up either trailers uh, for dunks or threes, or he's often capable of taking it all the way. When he doesn't do that and they have to play in the half court, that in itself takes away a huge advantage he would be able to create by helping his teammates out. Uh, and I, I don't, I generally don't know if it's a conditioning thing. Um, you know, I also think there are times when it looks like Julius could be more engaged off ball, setting screens, um, you know, relocating. He is a shooter now, so he needs to, at least in some ways, think a little bit like a shooter. That probably is what leads to it, is if he can't be that effective off-ball uh, beyond just being a stretch four, you're really underutilizing him, right? And I think it's it, it can be difficult to build around those kinds of players. And this is a thought I've had, and Rona, I'd be interested in your take, right? But Randall kind of fits, he's not even really a big at this point, the way he plays. He really plays like a power wing, right? So he's, I'm not saying he's as good as Kawhi Leonard, but he's in that mold as someone who, you know, you give him the ball, he's too big for most uh, you know, skinnier wings and um, too quick for most bigs. Um, you know, he can score at three levels, all of that, but he needs the ball in his hands. And the guys who are able to make that work as like a championship level player or like, you know, the core piece, the guys who, who make that work are core pieces on championship teams, right? You think about um, obviously Kawhi I just mentioned, but like Luca, um, PG, um, and then even, even, you know, even a guy like Giannis now, if it's, I mean, his jumper is falling, right? But if you cannot, if he's not quite good enough to construct an elite offense around, I think it can be tough for those guys to just fit in as one of the guys, right? Um, and maybe I'm missing examples of, maybe, you know, of, of guys who can do that. You know, maybe Jeremy Grant is an example of a guy who can kind of uh, change roles as need be. But I'd be curious as to, in your thoughts, on how Julius might fit in, especially since I know you said, you know, you have the kind of five metrics based on, on stylistic tendencies and all that. So, yeah, I think that's definitely a, uh, a good mold in a way. And I think, honestly, one of the biggest differences between the guys of this mold who are on good teams versus championship teams is what they're bringing on the defensive side of the ball. Because when we look at Giannis, Kawhi, and PG, those are elite defenders on the other side of the ball. So while they're doing all this stuff on offense, they can always go back on that defensive energy and defensive skill. I mean, they definitely have skill at that level um, to, to just help the team win games in that nature. And that's something, obviously, Luca has issues with, not he has issues, but there are issues with how the Mavs are constructed. 
But even beyond that, we haven't seen the Mavs really take that that real next step into being a true championship contender. They've always been a playoff team, but not a true championship contender. Um, so that's one thing. I obviously at this stage in Julius's career, I don't think we can expect him to turn into that level of defensive presence. Um, so that's just something I think more to consider and acknowledge because it's not something that can be fixed necessarily. Um, but it is uh, a trait that he has in the sense that he is a point forward on offense and he is bigger than a lot of the guys that he will be going up against. And he's quicker than the guys who are bigger than him, um, to exactly your point. So uh, in terms of how the metrics are analyzing him, one of our archetypes that we create based on these five metrics is the archetype of the point forward. And Julius has fit in that metric, I think, for the past three years, definitely his two years with the Knicks, these past, including this one. Um, so that's definitely the mold I'd look for with him is just the guy who you can try and run the offense through. Um, but to your guys' point, when the shots aren't falling, that can't really be an excuse not to have any energy on the other side of the ball. And I think that's what we see with uh, and I haven't watched as much of the Knicks games, but I think with the general energy that the second unit is bringing, uh, they're able to kind of will those shots in just by having that positive attitude and positive energy on both sides. And honestly, I think one of the big reasons for that is just the youth and, and two of the core drivers of that second unit are Obi Toppin and, and Quickly. And those are young guys. They were both on the uh, Knicks Summer League team together. Um, and I think that's played a big role in just how they're able to sustain the energy. These guys have played together. They, they had a good run in Summer League, obviously. Um, and I think just that chemistry kind of built from there. Um, so I'm definitely of the idea and agree with uh, Schwinn about maybe mixing up what the lineups are going right now. I don't know what the best fit for the starters is, and I don't know who the best guy to take out is. Um, but I, I just, I'm always of the opinion of you, you need to change something. You can't just keep throwing the same thing out there and expect it to work. Yeah, I think one of the issues uh, with the starting lineup is like you have four guys, uh, one through four, who think score first, which isn't bad. Like I, I don't like this is this is also part of it. Like. I don't think these guys are necessarily inherently selfish, but you're wired a certain way as a player, right? Like, am I like there are scorers, there are connectors, there are pure role men like Mitch. Like, there are guys have their play styles, and you just have to play to that. Um, and I, I do think that like you can have four scorers play together. Lord knows, uh, the Clippers at times loved they. Nobody loves to have lineups that feature only ISO players more than the fucking Clippers. Um, but like, you know, that also maybe works because Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are a certain caliber of player, right? You can get away with that. Um, I was like, I think the Knicks need somebody who will help create more flow. I think they need a more versatile piece, somebody who's more capable of kind of seamlessly fitting into more of a off-ball role where they're a tertiary or even fourth type of option. Uh, and so. What I would propose, because there are a few things here, he's not going to bench Kemba right now. I don't think politically that would play well in the locker room either at this point in time. Uh, and I don't think it makes sense at this point in time to to totally cut bait with Kemba. We've seen flashes of him, you know, going. Well, yeah, to, to that point, right? Um, you know, he obviously, maybe he was reading Twitter, <laughs> um, but he came out on fire against the Hornets, right? Um, to you know, do you think that's uh, you know, does that give you more confidence? Because I know you had been a little bit down on him. Yeah, I, I don't even, I, the, the shooting was great, but also like he was just doing a lot more playmaking when he was on the ball. He had a few passes to Mitch that were awesome. Like, like really, really good passes. And I don't ever expect Kemba to be, you know, like he's not fucking John Stockton or Jason Kidd. Or, like he's not that type of passer. But 
as long as he's able to leverage his scoring into playmaking for others a little bit, that's fine. I, I don't need him to be one of the greatest passers of all time. So yeah, I, I thought he played well on uh, Friday against Charlotte. And what I was going to say is like, yeah, I, I whatever, that gives me more hope, whatever. Even if it didn't, I just know that Tibbs isn't going to sit him right now. Uh, I think Tibbs has shown that he's a little, he's able at least to be a little bit harder on Evan than he is on anybody else. Um, and what I will say is I think Evan is probably going through one of the more harder adjustments after having been the first or second option in Orlando for such a long time. Um, I would suggest, uh, I think that Tibbs also loves having Rose and IQ together off the bench. I don't think he wants to touch that. And I, while it's annoying at times, I do understand it because I mean, fucking look at what they've done the last two years when they play together. They're, they're amazing. Um, I would suggest putting Burks in the starting lineup and putting Fournier on the bench for two reasons. If you look at Burks' shot profile this year, it is very, very different. He has adapted to letting quickly do more on ball. He's comfortable playing off ball. Uh, I think he's way more of a chameleon, which is maybe mirrored by the type of career he's had, where he's had to play different types of roles in different situations. Uh, he's basically playing like, and like, look at his shot profile. He's like 60% of his shots are from three. Uh, most of his shots are assisted. I think it's among the highest level of assisted shots he's taken in his entire career, maybe since Utah when he was very much like a more of a role player. Um, I think that he, you know, we taught, like you just mentioned it earlier, Stacey, that he's not necessarily a guy you want having to create advantages, but when he gets advantages created for him, I think he's, he sees those passes and I think he's good at attacking those closeouts and shooting those shots. Uh, I just like his flexibility and I think he's like not a great defender, but I think he's probably better at the defensive stuff that you'd need to do alongside RJ on the wing. Uh, I do think that was something I and a lot of other people did underestimate um, coming into the season. Um, And the other piece of this is I think Fournier could really, really feast off the bench. And I think, his shot creation would uh, work well with that unit. I think that we've seen he has pretty good. He's actually shown a lot of good passing uh, to the bigs when he goes in off the bounce. Uh, I think playing with Obi might be really good for him. Um, and I do think that like it'll be easier for him to not feel like he needs to defer and stuff like that when he plays with guys off the bench versus with the starting unit. To me, it looks like he's not playing his game. He's like kind of searching for it, and and he feels like he doesn't want to step on anybody's toes. This is something that Kemba's going through too. I think Fournier has actually gone through it more than anybody. Um, and so I just feel like that is a switch that would make sense for a variety of reasons. And uh, I think that the defense, like the things that they need Burks to do on defense with the bench, is stuff that Fournier can do. Uh, and I think the stuff that the starters need, uh, maybe that wing next to RJ to do defensively is stuff that Burks can do well. And so I just think that's a switch that I know that there's been a lot of people annoyed by Burks this year for whatever reason. I think it's mostly just because they want to see Grimes play. But if you just look at the actual numbers and if you look at how he's played over the course of the season, I think he's been good and at times really, really good. Um, and I just, I, I would like to see that switch. I think that's, also, an easier political switch in the locker room, and I think it's also 
one that um, Tibbs could probably sell to Fournier kind of easily. Like, hey, look, like we actually think like we want to feature you more off the bench, you know, because you always have to like figure out how to sell it to these guys, right? Um, and I think that's like, look, I also will say this. I think that the issues the Knicks are having to some degree are issues we saw a team like Atlanta deal with last year when they signed a bunch of guys and threw them into the rotation and it took a while and a coaching change, um, which I don't think the Knicks will need to make. But like, I think it just does take time sometimes to to really like when you're adding in a bunch of on-ball usage guys um, for them to figure it out. And even if like, you know, the early part of the season, it was like, oh my God, they're just never going to not score a billion points. Some of that was just like, you know, they were, you get teams that aren't settled defensively at the start of the year. Teams are all searching. So maybe it's easier. Uh, and now they're finding it a little harder. So um, that would be my suggestion because I, just based on the idea that he's not going to bench Kemba and he wants to keep IQ and Rose together. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think one thing that would help definitely is the, um, is the, uh, defense for the starting unit, um, and I you you lose. Burks is not as good of an on off ball defender as Fournier, but um, it seems like for better or for worse that the Knicks are that hasn't that hasn't helped. Right, um, they really need to limit dribble penetration, um, and Burks has shown that ability in the past. Uh, he's a little more physical, uh, bigger body. I think you know has a longer wingspan. I think than Fournier, and he's obviously more agile. Um, in terms of politically, or selling it to Fournier, uh, I mean they are paying him eighteen million dollars, so I could see that being a little bit of an issue. And you know, I can see the Berman headlines already. Um, you know, and then everyone's going to be like, "Oh, look, Lonzo is." By the way, he's shooting I think thirty five percent on twos, but people are still killing the Knicks. He's for, the point guard for a player who. Signed the minute free agency started. Um, yeah, can, we, can point- we just talk about this real quick? Like, can people stop fucking acting like the Knicks had a chance at Lonzo Ball? It's pretty obvious the Bulls did all kinds of fuckery before free agency started to recruit him, which is illegal, and they're going to get punished for it, by the way. Um, and I just think that we need to stop pretending like the Knicks had a chance. They clearly never had a chance because to have a chance, they would have had to do the same fuckery, and they probably would have ended up losing a first round pick for it. Which I think the I think the Bulls are going to get dinged a first round pick for this, on top of potentially losing about. Apparently, they're looking at a fine that could be up to ten million dollars. Them and Miami. So both those teams can go fuck themselves. And people that want to keep pretending that we had a chance or an option of signing Lonzo Ball without doing or Lowry for that matter, yeah, or yeah. Lowry without doing this illegal bullshit that these teams did, they're stupid. Like I'm sorry, like it's just. We didn't have a chance. And sure, you can say, like, everybody does it. I think clearly it's obvious that whatever went on in those situations is more egregious than your normal, you know, the NBA looks the other way type of, you know, fucking recruiting. It it clearly is a lot stronger than that. So, sorry, I just needed to say that. Get that off my chest. uh, Well, but that that brings me to a point. That would be something I would would also pitch over to Rohan. Uh, so, I mean, you know, so I think that it's an interesting idea, Shuin. I don't know that it solves all the Knicks problems that, yeah. that switch. Um, but, and, but I do think that, you know, if the, the Knicks at least, we'll see, like IQ's on-ball defense, maybe that can help stem the tide uh, a little bit. But I also think that the second unit's defense would take a bit of a hit with Burks going. Um, but what I, I am curious, so this has been kind of a point of discussion, I think, among Knicks Twitter is, and I think part of this is just the difficulty of dealing with, you know, as we were talking about, one of these power wings types 
who is not quite elite or championship level. And maybe that's more on defense than I've considered, uh, to your point. But, um, you know, maybe that's just the difficulty of building around a guy like Julius Randle. But who is the optimal point guard to play with Randle? A lot of people feel like it would be someone like Lonzo Ball because you need, quote-unquote, a you know, great passer who can, quote-unquote, get him the ball in the right spots, right? The other take is that you would prefer to have someone who, you know, Randall is more of a methodical bruising driver, but you'd like to have someone, you know, with great speed, like a prime Kemba, um, who can really scramble defenses and get to the rim. And that was exactly get, who I was going to say, prime yeah, Kemba. exactly, right? Um, uh, so, I mean, sorry, what kind of, you know, and I don't know if there's data to support this, but where would you fall kind of on that side of the, the opinion mill? Yeah, so uh, definitely no no data currently to support uh, the take I'm about to say, but I, I would think it's uh, kind of exactly what we were saying along the lines of a prime Kemba. I do think a floor stretcher is someone who's important to pair next to Julius, um, and he, he's shown that he can pick and pop and, and he can shoot the three. So not from the standpoint of he needs space in the lane to operate, um, but just from the standpoint of when you operate in the pick and roll and the, and the point guard can't shoot and going under the screens, uh, it can just be tricky as the role man. And if And I think to your point, that's one of the things that makes Julius the best is his ability to power through the lane. So while he can, you know, roll out and, and, and pop the three when needed, I think the, the ability to have a point guard running the pick and roll who's dangerous when you go under the screen is going to be really important to pair next to Julius. And so to settle it, I mean, a, you know, a guy like Lonzo probably wouldn't have solved those problems, right? Unless we did play him as a wing and also sign Kemba. Yeah, like that. That's and I, I think look, that, I think and 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 that that's a fair argument, by the way. If you want to say Lonzo would have been a better signing than Fournier, uh, because he has he's better as an on-ball defender than um, I'd expected. Definitely. You know, uh, friend of the blog. Team. I mean, a lot of Pelicans guys had said, you know, he on ball he's not really that great, uh, and I think he's proven that he's much better than expected in Chicago. So uh, the. The thing, but like I also think that when we talked about Lonzo, I I feel like we always said like, well, if you signed a point guard and got Lonzo, that would be okay. But it would not be okay to be like Lonzo is the point guard. Which well, I think, but I, I did see arguments also that like, well, if he's a connecting wing, is he worth twenty million dollars? And just say Tyree. Uh, just say you saw Tyree say. Tyree said Oscar. Honestly, sometimes they they both kind of uh, align and diverge. It's like galaxy uh, brain takes from them nonstop. I love those guys. Um, but, but I mean, but the, I mean, yeah. So the point I'll make is, um, you know, I, I think he's surprised us in that regard. Um, or I mean, I say us, like a lot of the people on the blogs, like that he's this elite even as a wing, right? Because of the shooting. Uh, I do think again, people are overstating just a tad. Like he's been really bad inside the inside the three point line, uh, and he's probably not going to shoot forty five percent for the whole year. Uh, but the the on ball defense and the shooting makes him perhaps worth it, especially in a league where you know guys like Norman Powell are, like he's better option than those guys, right? Um, but I don't think he would have like I think there's people who still think he was the point guard we needed, and Kemba is too much of a score first guy or whatever. And that's where I think um, we're on to your point. Like, yeah, it, that that's not really the fit like a pass first guy because I think we would have ended up having the same thing. Like Julius isn't some elite off ball mover, right? Um, you know, he's more of a guy that likes to post up, um, you know, he, he likes in the pick and roll, but again, you need, you need both pull up gravity as well as kind of the ability to attack the rim. Um, and you know, you, you, so that, and, and the, the reality is the Knicks, it, it's tough to find that it's tough to find a franchise point guard, right? Most teams that are able to do it, 
either get a high draft pick or already have like their elite guy and then sign someone great in free agency. But teams don't let those guys go, right? I mean, forget the elite guys. Like, and Fabio Ambrito is great. I'm not saying he's not a great player, but he got paid. You know, guys like Rubio in the past have gotten paid, right? Like, if you have a good point guard, teams don't let them go very easily. Um, and so it's been the nagging bugaboo for the Knicks. But if you look at the teams that have solved those problems, they've generally had the good fortune of of ending up with a you know getting a generational draft pick or or some kind of um, you know a free agency or making a risky trade that turns out well. And the last thing I'll say is kind of in that note, the Knicks I think are a little bit. It feels a little bit like the Raptors, and maybe uh, Randall is kind of like DeRozan was five to eight, seven years ago where the Raptors were competitive, but they didn't have an elite talent, right? Because they hadn't won. They, they were, even when they were bad, they were never bad enough to tank, really. I mean, Bosch, I think, was the was the only real blue chip or high draft pick they got. Now they got Barnes, but for a long time, they were kind of in that place where maybe the Knicks are now, right? And the Knicks, the Knicks got RJ. That was, I mean, that was branding it. But even when RJ is playing really well, and Schwinn, I think you're probably going to hate me for this, but you look at the guys that hit on guys like, you know, SGA or John Morant, and RJ is a great piece, but those guys change franchises, and the Knicks have not really gotten one like that. Um, and, Ron, I'd be curious to your take on that, you know, how you might rate yeah. RJ versus some of those franchise-changing guys. And, Shwin, I, I would love your rebuttal as well, because um, so much needed, you should believe in RJ and you're dumb for not, would be helpful for my <laughs> optimism right now. So yeah, I'll also take a little uh, defense of RJ here. And the, the main thing I'll draw when you compare him to a guy like SGA is SGA has been given the reins in OKC and he has been over the past two years. He, he did have Chris Paul at some point, but it was very clearly his show to run. Uh, and that's just never been the case for RJ with the Knicks. And again, that's something we touched, out, touched on in the preseason pod where it's if you guys are not really getting a chip this year, how worth it is it trying to make it as a six seed or uh, even a, you know higher than that? Um, which there is merit. I'm not saying that that's the wrong option. There is merit to that side also. But in the grand scheme of things, if we're sacrificing prime years of RJ's development, that could you know hinder the overall outcome of the Knicks. You know, in terms of a five year success window. So that's the main thing I have when you compare him to a guy like SGA. I do think the flashes are there. He's obviously not going to be as strong of a playmaker as those guys, and that's one of the big things that we see with in terms of you know generational or not even generational franchise chasing franchise changing draft prospects is they can usually have a high level of playmaking and i think rj can get to a very solid level but never to the level of a john Morant or sga and that's obviously i don't think anyone's expecting that of him either yeah i mean uh i guess what i'll say is last time i checked memphis's franchise ain't changed for shit this year um and okc isn't doing shit other than going to the lottery so i'm not sure i'm gonna Wemby. Start talking about them as franchise changing talents quite yet. Um, I, to me, franchise changing talent that means like like to me, I'll, I'll be honest. I think Evan Mobley is a franchise changing talent. I don't. Luca is the obvious answer. To yeah, Luca is an obvious one. Like when you're talking about franchise changing talent, I, I to me that that bar is maybe higher for me than than you. Uh, I have higher standards, Daisy. Um, but Robin, would you put RJ in the same tier as those guys, like guy like Ja or even De'Aaron Fox, right? Well, like those I would, kind of picks. Maybe I, I'm, maybe I'm grouping them too high, but I do think they are still a tier above RJ. I just think like these guys are different players. Like I don't really, I don't. It's just weird to like if you, the importance of a primary is 
it's way more significant in terms of raising the floor of a team than any other position, right? Well, like, I mean, I, okay, so, so I like, even weird. if we talk about wings, right? I mean, Brown and like Tatum is a franchise changer. Is he though? I, 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 I'm going to say yes. Um, I would say you should look at his basketball reference page. But I, I think that's the difference between Tatum and Brown, right? Well, um, like, but like, but like, here's the thing: is like, like if you look at Jalen Brown in year three, again, I'm going to do this. Like Jalen Brown was not this guy in year three. There were flashes, sure. There were definitely flashes, but he was not like consistently doing the things that Jalen Brown does now uh, in year three. And like, this is like, well, the pull-up shooting, I mean, has been a revelation. Like, if RJ ever got to that level, that would be right. And we'll see. Well, we, you know, right now it's obviously not that level. So if you want to say that, like, the odds are against him, I would agree. The odds are against any player making the type of leap that Jalen Brown has made. Um, but like. I do think that, like, you know, look, if if, this, if we had had the same conversation two weeks ago, we'd be talking about how R.J. Barrett is the second coming of God. Um, like, Yeah, and he's, he's still having ups and downs like most young players. So yeah, it's he's not having worth... ups and downs. I think that, like, this is a hard transition for him. I think he's letting things get to him mentally that, that he should. Like, it's easy to say he shouldn't. And we should hold him to that standard because – he needs to be better. I'm the first person to praise him. I'm going to be the first person to criticize him. He needs to be better. He needs to consistently impact the game. He cannot have a and week. He can't have off days on defense this year. Yeah, and he can't have weeks of bullshit. Like, this was a week of bullshit for him. That's what I would Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Like, the Philly game was bullshit. The fucking uh, Bucks game was also bullshit. And then the Hornets game wasn't even bullshit. Like, to call that bullshit would be disrespecting bullshit. The, the Hornets game was like... <laughs> You know, I would have rather like that. That was like watching Ricky Ledeau or whatever the fuck his name was again, playing for the Knicks. It was ridiculous. Like I was just to say Lido, whatever. Yeah, Lido Ledeau. You know, whatever. Waiting uh, for waiting for Godot. Yeah, waiting for Godot. Um, like it was just uh, this week was bullshit. He can't have weeks like that. You cannot. You cannot just completely give out in the way that he gave out this week. Uh, I think that we've seen him. Go through we saw it last year go him go through a massive struggle and everybody was calling him a bust. We had people ready to trade him for Colin. But his defense was still good. That's the thing. Even those games when he was not shooting well, like he was playing elite defense. That was what was really disappointing this week. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I, either way, my point being is like we've seen him have terrible dips before and recover from it in a big way. I still believe in him. I still think that he comes out this season as an improved player from last year. Uh, I I think that like. It is not a coincidence that, like, look, like, let's be honest. Teams are go as their franchise players go for the most part, right? Um, it's not a coincidence to me that this starting lineup has struggled as Randall has increasingly struggled, I think, as the season has gone along. Um, I think that he's a bellwether. And, um, you know, like, RJ is trying to develop into something and it's hard for him to find himself in this offense. And so to Rohan's point, like I think if he was on a team like Cleveland the last two years where he literally just, they didn't, it was like, for example, Darius Garland was obviously the priority piece for them the last two years, even more so than Colin Sexton. I think Uh, Garland was a priority for them. Um, but even Sexton, you can throw this out there. Like both those guys got the lion's share of reps, right? Uh, offensively for those teams, uh, for that team, like they got to do anything offensively that they wanted to do. RJ has never had that 
Uh, I'm not necessarily convinced that's always the best way for players to develop. I think that it was good for RJ to develop in the way he was developed last year um, to be more in a more constrained role. I mean, Jalen Brown is a guy you could look at who played in a more constrained role initially his first two, three years in the league. And then year four, all of a sudden Stevens is like, okay, now go, go do shit. Um, I think like there's guys that benefit from that. And I think RJ will benefit from that. There's also going to be pain in that growth. And right now is one of those painful periods. Um, I still believe in RJ Barrett. I stand by everything I said before the start of the year. Uh, I'm not, I'm not where I am on Kemba or <laughs> with, with, uh, where, with RJ Barrett. I, I'm, I'm still a big believer in him. I think his mentality, his work ethic, we'll see him rise through this. Um, and yeah, like I'm just not ready to go to the point where, I mean, I think John Morant is a great talent. I also think you can argue that John Morant right now is a lot more of a floor raiser than somebody I'm not, I'm not yet convinced of like this guy can be the best player in a championship team, which I saw a lot of to start the season because look, I mean, he started off fucking amazing. So and he's still playing very well. Don't get me wrong. Um, I just, I, I, I'm not as sold on him is what I'll say. I'm actually probably higher on SGA than I am on him. Uh, yeah. And I think most people are right. I don't know about that. I think I think most people are right. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, a lot of people, um, I guess, on Twitter are. But I think it would be. I think the people we talk to, maybe because we're very smart and nuanced, uh, might have that as a discussion. But I actually think more people. I think broader. People wonder why they say Michigan fans are arrogant. But yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, Morant definitely has the the name brand appeal. I mean, just 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 because of the fact that he brought the Grizzlies into the playoffs last. Not not he single handedly brought the Grizzlies into I mean, the he playoffs. Was great that is playing. some of the perception. And yeah, the playing. I mean, the whole playoff series he was awesome, most definitely. Yeah, um, I I actually I'm like a little bit. The Grizzlies in general, I'm I've been lower on them than a lot of people. I didn't like their off season. I think I've got very back and forth. I used to be a very big JJJ guy. Uh, he's I yeah, am he's, still, but you still are. Yeah, I mean he's 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 definitely good, but it's not what I wanted nor expected. And he no longer has an entry, I think, to fall back on at, anymore. So his, I mean, there's times he's still grading out great though this year, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely oh definitely definitely going to be a very very solid player. Uh, he was someone I thought could be be maybe like you know a top guy, but. I mean, he's so weird, right? On the one hand, he, that combination of shot blocking and three point shooting. Oh, and four stretching. Rare, right? Yeah, and, and yeah, and like, and, and by the way, Sterner. he's a thirty. But here's the thing: he's not. He's putting them up at higher volume than Miles Turner, right? Like, I think for the most part, pe- defenses I feel like have closed out harder on him. And if there's data to contradict that, um, but at the same time, he's he's shooting forty percent from two, and he's a seven footer, right? Yep. Um, still rebound, and he's like he's never been a track. yeah he's never been a great rebounder either. Um, which I mean, those are Poku is. numbers. Is he is he guys is JJJ Poku? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I don't no, know. I, 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 he he was rebounding rebounding better. He, he rebounding on that. You sounded rebounding. very happy with that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> just got to channel my dad there. Um, he was rebounding better earlier in the year. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I think he'll be as the situation is a bad word in the Knicks land. He'll be the kind of guy that's fit dependent, but I think in the right fit, he is the kind of guy that can offer a lot of value. He's the kind of guy that this Bulls offseason has proven, at least so far, that you know these are the kind of guys where if you have the right scheme, you have a good coach, like they are misfit toys, but utilized the right way can be very useful, right? 
Um, I did, you know, kind of speaking of the Grizzlies. Sorry, go ahead. Did you want to ask me? No, no. If you want to take it somewhere, I was going to ask just to bring it back to the Knicks a little bit. Um, and you just kind of mentioned about finding guys in the right role. I think we need to talk a little bit about Obi Toppin. Obi Toppin, to me, has looked like arguably the Knicks' second or third best player over the course of the season. Um, obviously, but but he is not getting the minutes he deserves. Um, there's obviously reasons for that, mainly that Julius Randle exists. Um, exists. But, but, like, but, I mean, yeah, but when he's not giving 100, like when he's clearly either disengaged or maybe gassed for possessions at a time, and you have a guy that transforms the Knicks so much like Obi does. Yeah, like, I mean, it's like, I get it if he's not going to pay 25 minutes a night, but can you put Randall at 32 and Obi at 16? You know, like, that seems reasonable, especially on nights when Randall is maybe taking possessions off, you know? Yeah, the I other just... thing is his minutes per game have gone down. It's not like he started the season with low and has gone up. He's gone down as the season's gone on. Yeah, as the team has gotten healthier. And this is and where as he's gotten better. Yeah. Yeah. And he's. Like I'm just gonna read like it's it's a very small sample size. He's only played 193 minutes this year. Um, these are just his per 36 minutes or per 36 stats. 18 and a half points, eight rebounds, 2.6 assists, 0.9 steals, 2.1 blocks, uh, 56% from the field, 11.8% from three. I'm expecting that to come up by the way. Um, and he's just finishing like a goddamn maniac here. Uh, he's shooting 78% at the rim. Uh. His on-off is ridiculous, 24.4, 17.5 on-court rating. Obviously, that's not all him. He's benefiting from the fact that that entire unit is just playing out of their minds. But, like, he is actually being a driving force of that unit playing um, playing well. And, like, look, this is where Tibbs is, like, where I just talked about constraining RJ to a role might be a good thing. Uh, this is where I get frustrated with Tibbs because, like, he doesn't want to play small. I understand that. He likes having a rim protector on the court all the time. I don't understand how you can look at that Charlotte game and you're like, well, this is a matchup where we can play small. And instead of just playing Randall and Obi together, he takes Obi off the floor and then closes with RJ at the four and Randall at the five. Forgetting how bad RJ was in that game. How can you take, like, if there, that, that to me is asinine. And it's really bullshit because Obi. So is that the, is that the first time Randall's played five this year for you guys? No, he did that. Uh, he so at the start of the year we had a bunch of injuries at the center position, and Obi actually got a bunch of minutes with Randall on the court. Uh, and they were awesome. There yeah. was one game they weren't good. I think Toronto was the game where they didn't play Orlando. Well. Orlando? Yeah, it was Orlando. But they played awesome in the two games they got a chance to do that in the preseason, and then they played fucking like they turned the game around in the opener against Boston with that lineup. And then they played really well in the first game against Orlando in Orlando with that lineup. Um, and we've just not seen it really since that second Orlando game at all. And it's bullshit because that unit unlocks a different style of play for the Knicks. They can be a lot more aggressive defensively in terms of trapping. Um, I think Obi also plays with an energy that activates a lot of guys. Like he is always on the move offensively and it naturally creates flow, which the, you know, let's be honest, the starters desperately could use. Um, and just generally speaking, I mean, look, Rohan, I'm curious to see what your data says. I know we talked about this a little bit, but like, obviously his 
CRAM score isn't the highest by your data, but it's also, I mean, that's down to the fact that he's not able to play a lot of minutes, correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the way kind of the overall metric works is we take into account the per minute production to definitely reward guys who are doing things, even if it's limited minutes, but just as a nature, when you're trying to evaluate a whole space, you need to take into account what's actually happening in the game too. And that often gets correlated with how much playing time you get. Um, so yeah, his overall score is not super high when you compare it to a guy like Randall, who's getting 32 minutes per game. But if we look at the sample size amongst guys who are getting similar levels of minutes, uh, he's probably doing and grading out really well. I mean, so we saw at the start of the season, he actually grades out with a 6.5 CRAM, which is a really strong quality score. Anything above a 6.0 is really a rotation level guy. And the fact that he's able to do this uh, only in 19 minutes per game speaks even lo- uh, louder volumes, just about how efficient and how productive be, he was on the court during the... Go ahead. Go ahead. So who would be some of the other, just for benchmarking purposes, who are some of the other guys maybe in the 6.5 at, uh, in this ballpark? Um, yeah, so I know Derek Rose is another one of the guys who I think he grades slightly higher than uh, Obi does, but he's another one of the low minute guys who his overall score is around a uh, 7.4. But when you look at guys who are playing less than 25 minutes per game, I think he ranks fifth overall uh, in the entire league. Wow. Um, so that's definitely a good mark to be hitting when you are not getting that much time. Um, I'm actually just going to pull it up. So yeah, other guys who are getting like low minutes per game and grading out pretty well are guys like, so the other thing to consider is a lot of these players who grade out well in the low minutes per game are centers because centers are usually pretty efficient with their time on the floor. So we see guys like Zubak, Nurkic, LaMarcus Aldridge here. Um, These are, Nerlens Noel is another one who gets, you know, not a lot of time per game. Uh, So the fact that Obi's doing it and he's not that traditional center role, again, it's just something else that speaks kind of volumes about his overall skill set and what he's bringing to the game. Um, I think a, a good example is Dwight Powell and Maxi Kleba. These are both low minute guys who have less of that traditional center game. Uh, I guess not as much for Dwight Powell, but Maxi Kleba especially is, is a good comparison. I think uh, not in terms of game, just in terms of role and kind of the production level that that matches that role. I don't know if you have historic data. You probably don't have it going back this far. Um, but a comparison I thought of in my head was uh, <laughs> like a less annoying version of Josh Smith, um, the way he plays. Like, he's just, like, super active, high-flying athlete at the rim constantly and thrives playing more off-ball. But, like, Josh Smith, obviously, we knew one of his issues is, like, he liked to do stuff on-ball. Um, but Obi's good at it. Like, he, yeah. his decision-making is way better. Not to say he's... I yeah, mean, I'm just Josh talking. Smith I'm just talking. Handle and stuff like that, but yeah, I'm just talking purely stylistically. Like, yeah, yeah, I see. It. Like, I just think that like that is the type of player he is. Where it's like, do you want him playing the five? Not especially, but like, can you get away with playing him next to a non-traditional five like a Julius Randall? I think so, and I think you can do a lot of fun things with that lineup. Um, and I, I just look. I, I just fundamentally think this. Like the Knicks, for once, had a really good draft. And they've got both of these guys playing really well this year. And for for what for God knows what reason, we like constantly restrict their minutes. Like I understand you want to get the starters going and all that kind of shit, but like I mean, what is the justification for Emmanuel Cookley playing less minutes this year than he did last year? What is the justification for Obi Toppin to average less? I think he's averaging less minutes uh this year than he did last year, yeah. overall even. Um, which is insane. Like that's like I just can't even understand that okay he's actually averaging he's averaging yeah, it's like three more minutes though it's not it's not yeah. uh anything reasonable yeah and he's like 
doubled his production almost in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it's just like, I don't know what to, I don't know what to make of it. I'm not like, I don't think this is, I think Tibbs is also searching to find the right kind of, you know, minutes everywhere. So it's, it's a little hard for him too, but like, I mean, there's just games where you're like, well, this isn't a hard decision. Like, this is not hard decisions to leave in a guy. Like, he literally took him out of a game, uh, which I think it was against the Bucks. He might have taken him out at one point after he had a dunk. It was like he had a dunk. We extended the lead out to six or something. And he's like, all right. No, sorry. It's the Philly game. Uh, in the fourth quarter, like, the starters pissed away the lead again. And the bench kind of, you know, they built it back out to, like, six. And Obi made a dunk. And he, it was an alley-oop. And he was just like, you know what? It's time to bring Randall back in. Now, Randall actually closed that game really well, so credit to him. But, like, these are the decisions where it's like, you know, are you, is that a decision you're making based on how guys are playing? Or is this based on, you know, you're trying to get a guy going? Or is it even based on maybe, like, he's your starter, so you're just going to roll with him? I I don't know. The, these things are, like, you know, I will I think say there's this. definitely... Yeah, I think part of it is definitely the notion that, uh, and I'm not, I don't necessarily agree with it, but it's the idea that I can play this guy for 18 minutes and he'll be good in the 18 minutes, but then the production after that will exponentially decrease for whatever reason. And I think that kind of idea is definitely associated with the sort of energizer bunnies that we, you know, just those guys who really bring a lot of energy off the bench. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that logic, but that's something I've seen quite often a lot of teams and coaches do is no matter how much energy the guys bring into the game, they want to cap that at like 16 to 18 minutes for. Maybe they just feel that it, it, it can really go downhill very quickly after that. Yeah, so one thing I'd be curious, right, uh, kind of a mitigating option, right, because at the end of the day, you don't want to cut Randall's minutes too much, right? He is the next best player. The other option would be playing them with a five, right? Uh, oh, so the, the, there's two options. There's playing them together, which we know Tibbs doesn't like rim, doesn't like to not have a rim protector. And while Obi has made some strides there, uh, we have seen the Knicks get bullied at times on the glass when that happens, right? Uh, and when you give, you know, Obi more rebound responsibilities, it takes away one thing he's really good at, which is running the floor. When he leaks, I mean, he just, he will beat even aware guys down court and then, uh, you know, alert guys will hit him with those those long passes. Um, and I mean, like in another life, I could definitely see Obi top in as like a, a tight end or a wide receiver. But um, the question I'd have for you is, um, you know, do you think it's feasible to play them? Because Randall with a shot profile, you know, offensively plays a lot like a three. And while his defense isn't perfect, the one thing he's actually been reasonably good at is switching, right? He's he has the foot speed to switch onto perimeter players, but he's not great as off ball awareness um, or rim protection. Um, you know, those are, but those would not be issues for him as much three. Do you think that's feasible at all? I'll, I'll throw it to you, Rohan first. Uh, you're saying running Randall at the four and top and at the five? No. Uh, Sorry. Uh, I'm talking. So I think we, that's been discussed a lot, and I think Tibbs is just not going to do it, even though it seems like a good idea because of the rim protection issues. Uh, but what I'm asking is, could you play Randall at the three and Obi at the four? Sorry, and yes, like going, going backwards. Yeah. Um, I think you could, and I even think we saw Randall do that early in his career in Los Angeles, if I remember correctly. There was definitely lineups they ran where he was playing more of that three role. Uh, I'd be Do you know they're playing next. Were they playing him with shooters at the four and five? Or oh, that's a very old Lakers team with D'Angelo, Nick Young. Uh, I yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. That's where we're going back in the vault right now. Yeah. Um, I I think it, that was the year Kobe was hurt, right? 
like all year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, because Randall got injured his uh, first year as well. Yeah. Right. So actually, that might have been Kobe's retirement tour. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yep. Um, I think it could work. See, and and my thing is in this sort of situation, just in terms of the grand scheme of what's going on with the Knicks, it doesn't hurt to try. Is my always like always my opinion is you should be trying things like that right now and seeing maybe that is the magic formula. Uh, I agree. I think it could work, especially given that Randall occupies more of that point forward role. A guy like Luca is playing the, you know, small forward role in terms of the defensive scheme for Dallas. And LeBron's playing the small forward role for uh, Los Angeles, a large chunk of the time, especially when AD's playing the four, which uh, he definitely prefers to do. Um, so it's definitely something worth exploring. And I think especially just given the, I know you will sacrifice a bit of shooting, which in, you know, today's NBA is not, it's like the opposite direction of where everyone's trending. Um, I, I, I see merit in definitely trying it and I see potential for it working out. And, and kind of to follow up again on that, um, this is cause I was, I was talking, yeah, I was talking with Tyrese for those on the Knicks first, who is, who, who thinks that the spacing would be too cramped he just because you OB. can leave what he just hates OB. <laughs> no, he, he, he was saying that, you know, the spacing would be too cramped because you can just leave OB in the corner. But I mean, I, I my take is, um, you know, I don't like I've, I've said this also when people are like, we need to stretch five, right? I don't think five out or even four out is necessarily you have to have that to be a great offense, right? Um, and, and the Knicks, the Knicks can, if they did play Randall, OB, and, um, and, and, you know, like let's say Todd, right? Well, Todd might be more doable because he's at least shown that he can hit an open corner three. But let's say they did that, they can put two elite shooters. And right now, Derrick Rose is shooting like an elite shooter. Uh, he's upper forties. His volume has gone up. The IQ shots is, he's taking are also like of yeah. the ones you'd want, expect of elite shooters. Yeah, like yeah. lots of pull ups, no, lots of contested like pull up jumper in transition has almost become like I expect it to go down for him. Uh, Burks is a very so uh, elite shooters. But people might go off on me. So let me just say they can put three very good. They can put two very good shooters next to them. And Randall is that level of shooter, right? Um, or he's also a very good shooter. So can we survive three out? I mean, you know, I don't know what your data is telling you, but can you have a really good um, offense with two perhaps non-shooters at the at the front court positions? Yeah, I'm thinking, and uh, no, amongst the elite teams, I don't see you getting away with two non-shooters. Uh, I mean, if we just look at the Bucks, Brooke Lopez could always shoot. If we look at, uh, you know, some of the best teams for the Rockets, they only had the one shooter, sorry, the one non-shooter in Clint Capella. Uh, well, they're obviously the extreme example of the opposite. I mean, system. if you're counting, you're not counting AD as a non-shooter, right? So, Yeah, I mean, his role in the Lakers has honestly been more of a non-shooter than what we saw him do in New Orleans. Like, the last team that, like, really obviously is coming to mind in terms of the Twin Tower aspect is that AD Boogie Pelican season where they made some yes cleveland is doing it and they're very exciting just in terms of what's going on like like where that can go i know everyone's talking about mobley and jared allen's having the best season of his career by a mile um so i think we're starting to see the transition back to where that can maybe become more of a possibility and a reality just especially with the skill that we're seeing with a lot of these big men um even if it's not the full three-point shot there's just so many things that they can do on the floor that it's making it you know just they don't cost you as much even if they can't shoot the ball yeah and i I think that's that's where i am at with ob where it's like and ob's speed changes everything and i don't i just don't give a shit about the shooting like i think shooting has become almost in some ways just super 
overvalued when analyzing individual players and how they can fit into a lineup. Like, it, would it be better if Obi shot 45% from three? Yeah, obviously it would. I would love that. But And I just, will say, Obi shot at Summer League. I Like, obviously it's not the same and same level of competition at all, but he was hitting threes in Summer League at a decent rate. And, and I think I think he'll hit threes again. Like, I just think, like, what? how many threes has he even taken? Like, it, it can't even be that much. Um, I, I'll look it up right now, but like, and the issue with that, just sorry, while you're doing that, is when you only get 18, 19 minutes per game, you're not going to waste them on a, a three point shot that you're not so sure you're going to make. When you were playing, when he was playing summer league, he was getting 35 minutes per game. So he's you have taken, that flexibility. Yeah, sorry, he, he's taken 17 threes this year. Like, I, I'm sorry, like I just, I don't, I cannot give a single fuck about the percentage on 17 fucking threes. Like this idea that like he can't shoot or won't shoot, it's just stupid bullshit. That is based on absolutely, you know, what is it based on? It's based on a grand total in his career of 876 fucking minutes played of 102 three-pointers in his career. Like, I'm sorry. Like, if you want to be a data person, then you can't fucking say shit like that. Um, it's fundamentally it's a fact. So, yeah, that's honestly one of the kind of bigger points I was thinking about recently is we've kind of reached the most dangerous point in the season to me when we're around 15 games in because – when you're three, four, five games in, people acknowledge that it's a small sample size and that what we're seeing might not necessarily bear out. I think this is the time where people start to think these are the teams that we know and see because we've seen them for basically three times that sample now. But you got to consider it's still like far less than 25% of the season's over. So we're still yeah. very, very early and a lot of things have yet to bear out. Yeah, like it's like, do I really think the Knicks bench is going to play like the greatest team of all time for the rest of the season? Probably not. Do I think the starters are going to play like literally the worst team in the NBA for the rest of the season? Probably not. Um, and and really oh. like that's that's that that goes to your point. And just like to bring it back to Obi, like, and I mean this is the thing that drove me nuts about quickly too when people were like he was ice cold to start the year. I'm sure you can see that in your in your numbers too. Like he just he was straight up under three thousand, cooler yeah. than being ice cold. Exactly. Um, but he couldn't. <laughs> I fucked that up. Cooler than being cool. Uh, but he. He couldn't hit, hit a shot. And I was like, you know, I thought he was still playing well. And people were like, how can you say that? He's not making any shots. I'm like, well, first of all, you can play well without shooting well. Um, maybe not over the course of an entire fucking season, but over like four or five games. Yeah, sure. You could do that. Um, and, you know, lately he's been slowly making more shots. And now all of a sudden people are like, oh, my God, he's gotten so much better since last year even. And, um, you know, I just feel like these things tend to stabilize over a longer sample. Like, you know, I think OB is not going to shoot 38% from three, but I think he's probably going to shoot like 33, 34%. And if you're shooting 33, 34%, you know, then I think you could maybe be more tenable in a weirdo lineup where you're playing him and Julius next to a room running five. Um, and you I was also just allow OB to just run on every, because he wouldn't have to rebound as much. Right. And, and yeah. And, and the other thing too, that you'd get is and he's deadly on that. Like, I mean, it's like he, he can beat anyone down for Right. And the other thing you get with OB is like, I think his defense is legitimately good now. Um, and uh, I, I think, I'm not sure who tweeted this out. Might've been, might've been, Evan Zamir, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the last name. He's like at the city two or something on Twitter. Um, he tweeted out, I think it was him after summer league, like basically suggesting like maybe Obi could be a really good wing defender, even if he's not a good big man defender. And like the more I have watched Obi this season, like at first of all, I thought that was like, I was like, all right, we need to relax. Cause it's fucking summer league, you know, like calm down. 
But the more I watch him this season, I'm like, you know, this maybe isn't that untenable of an idea. Like, he's done a really good job contesting guys on the perimeter. He's probably, I think he's blocked like three or four three-pointers. Um, and this is not like psycho closeout on threes from the paint stuff. This is like he's playing on-ball defense and then we'll just, he's just got, I mean, he's 6'9", but he's got a 7'2 wingspan. Um, like, I just think it's something worth trying. And he's actually like really, you know, to Stacey's point, he is so active that it actually makes it, you know, possible. So I don't know what, if that is something that so, you So, yeah, I am with. looking now. Yeah. Uh, just in terms of lineups in the past couple of years where there's two like total non-shooters out there, not seeing it too often. The main two that have come are, are Cleveland's lineup for this current year. And the other one, ironically, is the Heat lineup with Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler being the two non-shooters. Uh, obviously, Jimmy's not a guard, though. The last one that triggered this kind of search criteria was Russell Westbrook on the Rockets, which again, we just so basically anytime I'm seeing this lineup pop up where two guys are non-shooters for the team, the second guy is always looking like he's a guard, basically. Jimmy Butler or Russell Westbrook. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, like I was saying, we might be kind of shading towards that in the future now. They're not non-shooters, but the Magic are also trying to run Wendell Carter and Mo Bamba together a good chunk of the time. Well, uh, Bamba I mean, is a shooter now, right? So I was going to say they're both. Yeah, they're both hitting their threes recently. I think Wendell Carter had like four or five threes in his last yeah. game, or I'm, something recently. That's a team you talked about. Small samples. That's Schwinney's always been a huge <laughs> Wendell Carter Jr. I fan, though. I am a Wendell Carter Jr. fan, and I still believe in him more than I will ever believe in Mo Bamba. But um, that's a team where, like, I've seen a lot of people start getting really hype about them, and I actually no. like. Yeah. I, I yeah, don't know. I think they're going to fade off pretty hard. They have and, the Wagner bros. Oh, and Franz. Oh, I, I love Franz. No, Franz and I, just and buy I, your like, Buckeye hat already, man. No, and I like their general like direction and what they're trying to do. Like, I'm I, like, I, I'm not questioning any of that. I just think that like people that are thinking they're going to like make some backdoor run at the fucking play and need to relax. Um, whereas like, so yeah, the, yeah, yeah sorry, I was just going to say like, whereas the team like, Cleveland, I feel like people are still waiting for the bottom to fall out. And I do think they'll regress a little bit. There's some weird stuff going on with them. But, like, when you watch them play, like, I mean, look, I'm just going to say, I think Evan Mobley might be a generational talent. Like, his defense at his age, the shit he does is, like, he's like a savant. It's crazy to watch. It is insane. Like, he had a possession yesterday where he just, he first of all, he did uh, one of those chase down blocks on Tatum in transition. And then he just fucking worked him in the post like and this is all down the stretch of a game where like i think they were down 19 at one point 72 celtics love blowing their leads yeah but i thought they'd be so much better since they got rid of fournier and walker um but yeah like i just i watch evan mobley and i like that to me like you know you asked earlier about sga and moran and like i like both those guys i have questions about them as far as like are they going to be MVP caliber players. I watch Evan Mobley and it's very early on, but I watch him and I'm like, I see an MVP caliber player there. Yeah. No, no. I'm definitely all aboard the uh, Mobley train. Uh, there's nothing that's nothing I've seen in this game that doesn't seem legit. Like it's not going to stick around and just get better. Does uh, your data show like the impact with him or? Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. I think he's one of the top rate. I think he is the top rated rookie right now. And I I'd have to check like historically how he's ranking amongst other rookies, but he's definitely putting together a really strong profile. Well, kind of on that note, I kind of want to ask this before, um, you know, when we were talking about RJ and Obi, um, you know, I, I know 538 does kind of the, 
age curves and kind of the projections, right? So I think, for example, on on RJ Barrett, they're actually pretty high. Um, you know, I think they project his five-year um, contract value to be about 118 million. Um, you know, do you guys have any projections like that, or you know, what would what would your models say maybe about uh, some of the Knicks young guys? Yeah, so uh, we don't kind of project out in that fashion. I think the, the easiest way that we draw projections is just kind of plugging in those five skill scores for a player and then seeing kind of players of similar both uh, size and, and age uh, and then obviously skill and just seeing kind of the path that they, they've fallen down. So I know one guy I was kind of looking into recently was a guy like Jalen Brunson uh, just because he's coming up for a contract this offseason. And he was comping similar to a guy like uh, – it was interesting. He was comping very similarly to like Goran Dragic from 2011 when he was leaving Houston. Uh, he was comping kind of similarly to Terry Rozier before he uh, when he jumped ship from Boston to, to Charlotte. Um, so that's kind of the way I would I would go out and project contracts from that fashion. And and from that standpoint, I think last year R.J. Barrett, especially in the playoffs, he was starting to build towards that point forward mold. And that was the big thing with RJ last year in the playoffs. Uh, his all of his metrics jumped up for us. He he went from I think a bronze medal performer in the uh, regular season to a a silver performer. And he was the Knicks' best player for for you know the the one playoff series you guys had. And the big reason for his jump was his floor general skill score, uh, his his playmaking essentially. And uh, I was looking deeper into the number, and it was I think like he wasn't even assisting that many times per game. It was I think around three. But he was getting, I think, 0.2 or 0.3 turnovers per game. So he was being very, very careful with the ball. And that's kind of, in, in my opinion, the next step for a lot of these young players if they really want to get that, not even get the max contract, but be that guy is just developing that playmaking aspect. Yeah, um, that, that, that makes sense. Um, yeah, like, I, I think that that is kind of a differentiator. And I think he's shown it more this year, uh, partly because of... Um, because they, they have shooters, right? So whatever you, the problems with the Knicks offense has been, the spacing has been much better than it was last year. Um, kind of, so the two questions, I do have, I actually have a lot of questions, um, but I'll try to keep them brief. One, um, just quickly, do you weight the playoff performances any differently than regular season? And two, um, yeah, I think there's there's really four main guys. Uh, you know, we haven't seen Grimes or McBride enough to get data, but there's four guys I think of, that are young guys that are of real interest to Knicks fans, uh, and they can be all polarizing to an extent, right? And that's Mitch, Obi, Quickly, and RJ. Um, so it'd be interesting to just get your kind of thoughts on on those guys, and you know what um, what some of the projections might be. But the first question is, yeah, like, do, are you weighting playoff performances any differently than regular season? Um, so no, they kind of exist as a unique, separate data set in our in our database. So twenty twenty one regular season is its own thing from twenty twenty one playoffs. Uh, the way that they get weighted differently is kind of just the nature of how the game gets played because rotations are tighter, guys are getting more uh, minutes on the floor, which means, first of all, if they're less productive in that time, it's going to reflect poorly on them. Um, secondly, just because you're playing the same team you know, for either the entire playoffs or you're only playing four teams tops throughout the playoffs, uh, just kind of the way the game is played, you just see that in the data. So there's nothing that we adjust on our end for it other than just kind of things skew a little differently. So for example, especially early in the playoffs, like after round one or two, you'll see just a lot more gold performers in general. Uh, the other thing we can see is a guy who can have a really good first round series and a guy, then he has a kind of mediocre, or even poor second round series. Uh, his reputation for the playoffs will be that he fizzled out and he didn't perform well, but his overall kind of rating still might be high. Uh, ben Simmons is someone who that actually kind of applies to pretty strongly for the 2021 playoffs. Yeah, and we can uh, we'll talk about James Harden a little bit. Don't worry. Oh man. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, for Ben, just for example, he had an, obviously an awful uh, second round series against the Hawks. Or sorry, yeah, second round series against the Hawks. Um, but he, he was pretty good against the Wizards that first uh, playoff series. So his overall score for, for the 21 playoffs was still pretty decent. It's always been like that with him in the playoffs. He's always good round one, then round two he just turns into. Yeah, I believe it. Which I mean, again, like yeah, that's not a good thing. Like you have to, and and for example, there was an opposite. I'm forgetting who exactly it was, but I was kind of tracking the round by round performances of guys in the playoffs last year, and every single guy who went down from round to round was seen as you know the bust of the year. And just simply maintaining your performance from level to level is like that is all you need to do. You don't really even need to improve it as you go on to the next round. Did Giannis uh, well, break your model? He did not. <laughs> Honestly, the, the only person, like, obviously not from a playoff standpoint, and not only person, but Joker is just the guy who consistently is doing crazy things on, on, on the metrics and stuff just because of he's touching the game in so many different areas and his scoring is so efficient. Um, he's, he's currently the top performer in the Ram this year as far as, as well as being the top performer last year. They literally can't function without him on the court half the time this year. I know. <laughs> yeah no he's yeah he's he's pretty special the other interesting thing for him is i was kind of running the split search between you know how is Jokic looking between compared to a guy like steph and it was really funny because steph's you know ram month by month he started off pretty poorly last year then he just went like he broke the scale in that month of april his efficiency number yeah. yeah yeah he absolutely broke the scale and then you see a guy like Jokic who's just like month in month out doing the exact same thing and it's absolutely elite well it's like that's the like that's kind of like the nature of Steph's game too, right? It's like that variance. Exactly, yeah. In. It's like, he's just like one of those, it's always funny, like, uh, I think I saw some stat where it was like, Durant, just, he just doesn't, doesn't have a lot of like, 40 and 50 point games, but it's like, he's always hitting like, you know, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, like every, oh, you like know, it's 50 like, per, 55% shooting, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like consistent everything. And then like, but like Steph is a guy who will have like, you know, these 14 point games and then he'll all of a sudden just go off for like 50. Like he did that last week. Right. Um, yep. And, and then 40 just, after that, yeah, he's just a guy who like, it's, it's like one of those things, right? Like there's, he just, when he goes off, he can just win you a game in a quarter. Like he, he just has that explosiveness to his game. That is so different than maybe like, honestly, maybe than anybody who's ever played before. Like he's just like Clay Thompson's the only other one who comes to mind. Thirty-seven, right? Yeah. Oof. Yep. Yeah, and and even with Clay, it's like it's different because it's not that type of on-ball stuff that Steph. Oh, does. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Steph can get his own bucket, obviously. Yeah. yeah a lot like better. he just breaks defenses, and so here's my segue uh, to ask you about one young Emmanuel quickly. I don't think he's going to become Steph Curry. Just saying that for the record. Uh, and I know, yeah, and I know <laughs> that your data is a little bit. Um, I want to say I don't want to say it's a little more down on him this year than Rose or Obi even um but I'm assuming the data on him from last year was probably good and is he somebody that you think because he is like a very high variance type of player the way he kind of shoots where he shoots from the shots he takes um is he somebody that you think could have some hidden star upside that, that that's there because i watch him and i have some really crazy hot takes about him that i would like to drop but i'm trying to be patient and uh <laughs> wait a little longer but like i just i think that he might actually possess the most star upside of all of the Knicks young players um and 
even if it's a little bit more it's if if it's more of a long shot than somebody like rj barrett i do think that the the ceiling of somebody like quickly and i think he's made some strides in terms of his finishing at the rim this year um ball handling passing that aren't necessarily showing up in the numbers quite yet uh for a variety of reasons some of them being minutes some of them being on ball reps um i just think that like he really you know we talked about what kind of guard would you want with 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 julius like to me uh, a a kind of more fully formed version of quickly would be a devastating player to pair with somebody like Julius Randle. Uh, and I guess for a comparison of somebody who maybe he could model his game after and, and maybe kind of follow that career path uh, is one Darius Garland. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, one thing about his, this season is his metrics are definitely way below them anything i'm looking at for his prior seasons so that's something especially the scoring metric as that scoring gets better which it will just get better as you know more games get entered into the sample right now he just has too many games where i think as you guys said he was shooting very very poor to start off the year uh and that's kind of weighing down his overall sample this year uh in terms of the long term do i see him being a star star probably not and i think there's kind of things that uh you look for when you know the player is playing in college and things like that, and he never kind of reached the heights that you traditionally see from a guy who ends up turning into a star. And he he did spend two years at Kentucky, uh, which is not it, it. It's a demerit in the sense that by playing that second year, you really want to see that guy leap up into the upper echelon of college players, and he never really did that. Well, he um, did win SEC Player of the Year, so I mean, at least from and in terms of statistical production, it wasn't quite there, but um, you know. It, no, yeah, yeah, I got you, and 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 I I think he will be a very good player. So I think, and that that my kind of sec- second point there is in terms of just like overall star upside on the Knicks, especially or specifically, to me, the scoring guard, regardless of the talent level, is always going to have the more star upside because okay, not always, obviously there are situations, um, but we'll generally have the advantage for having star upside because kind of the nature of the league and the value of that position is just so high, as you guys talked about, like. Finding that franchise point guard is a really, really tough thing to do. And when you find it, that can be, you know, changing for the entire franchise that can help you guys, you know, win championships. So quickly, in my opinion, like he's the only young talent you guys have who could fit that mold. And from that standpoint, I think that's a really good reason to be excited about his overall impact for the Knicks down the line. Uh, Yeah. And kind of on that same note, right. Have you seen, so I'm curious, I mean, again, this could be a small, too too little data to kind of understand this. But, um, you know, have you seen the Kentucky effect be like a thing, right? Because we've seen a lot of these guys. This is something where a reason why I thought quickly might have uh, some. I didn't expect him to be this good this quick. But it's because I wrote an article that was very detailed about why Emmanuel quickly. You mean I wrote an article? No, no, no I, I wrote that. <laughs> Not, you, you're, that's racist. Right? You can't just con- um confusing in people no i mean that was that was one so but i mean it's not just it's not him right this hero uh there's guys like pj washington obviously sga um you know who at kentucky had more muted roles because for a variety of reasons one they tend to have a lot of talented players so it's tough for one to really dominate the ball and two i think kalapari a lot of the guys who are just going to be beasts in college are seven footers who aren't really shooters so they tend to have, like, I think Knox played the three at Kentucky and he wasn't really that great of a shooter yet. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things kind of mute guys. 
have you seen that Kentucky effect be persistent or, you know, is there something more to it or is this perhaps people just um, engaging in, in selection bias? No. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely a lot of cases of it. Carl Anthony Towns, Devin Booker. I think that year, especially Kentucky had a stack team. Uh, I think that was the record when they said for like, I think it was maybe like seven draft picks or something that year. Is, they, um, is that so the year they beat? Um, they lost to Wisconsin. They, they lost, lost to Kaminsky, yeah. right? And then yep. the Duke won that year. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so, yeah, no, there is definitely that aspect. And, and I, I should acknowledge that with Quickly and his season that maybe that did play a role. Because um, I am looking at SGA's numbers now in Kentucky. And, and he did grade out higher than Quickly did as a freshman compared to Quickly's sophomore year, just for reference. Because the free um, throws and probably self-creation stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. But he, he doesn't grade that much higher than, than Quickly, which is meaningful. Uh, so part of that is definitely age. Um, so especially at this uh, level and stage in players' careers, doing things at even a year younger than another player is pretty meaningful. And for Shea kind of put, put this season together as a 19-year-old freshman compared to Quickly's 20-year-old sophomore season um, is, is meaningful. And again, I don't think uh, maybe, Schwinn, you are getting at Quickly as SGA, but... No, no, I, I, I think he's a totally different type of player. Like, I, I, when I compare him to Steph, it's not because I think nobody's to me. Steph is arguably the greatest point guard of all time. Okay, so um, this is more of just kind of the mold of the game. He could be, yeah. Like the, that the stylistic comp is like because when you watch, like, you know, we we just talked about like the explosiveness of Steph Curry, right? Like when he go when he goes off, it's like he gets you twenty points, like that. Um, quickly has these explosions that we've seen where it's like all of a sudden he just goes off for like boom, 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 three. Like, you know, he just will hit like three straight within a minute and a half. Um, and I just like, I would, it's kind of annoying. And I, I don't, this is something I won't actually super criticize tips for. Like it's kind of annoying. We sign or the, not, not tips, but the front office. I know why we signed Kemba. I can't hate on it. It was a good value proposition. We'll see how it works out. Obviously not off to the best start. Um, but like seeing the strides quickly has made, and I know that it's not, it doesn't show out necessarily in numbers quite yet, but seeing the strides he's made, I kind of wish we had just let him given him the starting job and, and gone with it. Because and yeah, I, that kind of, yeah, that goes back to kind of that preseason conversation we had about, and, and I reference it uh, here as well. It's like, what is the Knicks' goal right now? Are you guys trying to put together the most uh, successful product that can win games right now? Or are we thinking about the future? In which case, I think you make a very valid point, which applies also to RJ in terms of let's give RJ some more ball handling responsibilities. Maybe that will result in some more losses right now. But just like with Quickly, that could be the best thing for the team down the line. Yeah, and I think it's always tricky to manage that because like, look, I, let's we don't need to be like, we know that ultimately at some point the Knicks want to make a trade for a star of some kind. Um, hopefully it's not Carl Anthony Towns, um, but uh, it, it will be somebody. So like, I do think part of their, they want to say appealing to free agent to, to these stars. They wanted to probably get, they wanted to get contracts for sure that like, you know, you can easily move for a star. Like there's a reason why all these contracts are structured the way they're structured. Um, so like I'm, I know that was part of it, but like yeah, I mean that was always the trade off, right? Is that like yeah, well, you know, guys like RJ and quickly and Mitch, and not maybe maybe not so much Mitch, but Obi, like they're not gonna get the upticks in usage and minutes that you would see would have seen otherwise. We'll see how it works out. I think it's too early. Like again, like same thing. It's too early to say yep. it was a fuck up or not a fuck up. But like 
I, I it's just like when now having seen quickly now that I have this information of like what he's doing in his second season, like his defense is fucking awesome right now. He's literally just altering games with how active he is defensively, both as a point of attack defender and just like his communication and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just one of those things where like you kind of think about that now, but you know, that's just what it is. Uh, uh, you know, before we kind of, uh, finish out this conversation, uh, I did want to ask you about one James Harden. I know you said his, his week, I think did help him out in the data. Um, but I will say this, like I, I, I your data is your data. I, I can't question it. Um, when I watch him though this year, and I know like his shooting has come around, but to me, like just physically watching him, he doesn't look the same. Uh, that doesn't mean he's a bad player. Like he's still productive. He's still good. He can still run an offense, but like that extra kind of 5% that made him a superstar generational. Yep. Yeah. That, that type of like superstar offensive fulcrum. I don't, I don't see that. And even with like the plus shooting and the week he kind of had and shitting on the Pelicans, like I just, I, it has not popped off to me and maybe that'll come around, but like, you know, I didn't, I, first of all, I thought the idea that like, he's still recovering from his hamstring injury was a bit much for me to, to accept or that like, you know, he's not in shape because he, when he was not in shape at the start of last year, he was getting to the rim pretty effectively in Houston. And I just see a lot less of that this year in Brooklyn. Uh, but thankfully for Brooklyn, uh, Kevin Durant has decided that he's never going to miss shots. So that's really cool. That's pretty cool. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. KD is uh, something special right now. He's on some sort of tear. That's like you said, I mean, we need it. Like there's nothing else that we have or it's starting to come around, but up until this point in the season, he is why we're where we are. Um, so yeah, even in the playoffs last year, to your point, James wasn't doing some of the stuff that we normally see him. And I mean, at that time, he had the actual injury as well, I guess, uh, with, with the hamstring. So that was definitely a good reason for it. Uh, in terms of his overall start, I, I will say like, this is not, to your point, like, and I don't think anyone's objecting it, this is not the James Harden we saw in Houston, and nor does it look too close to that just in terms of his overall punch. His command of the game is there. Uh, yeah. At times, he's being too passive. And the other issue I have is the times, especially this week when I've been watching, when he is starting to step it up a lot, KD's turned into a little bit of a, a passive kind of bystander, just in terms of, which I get to an extent, let Harden do his thing and kind of get going and, and, and start cooking. So I, I get that. Um, but, but you want to see them blend more, right? Exactly, yeah. We haven't seen a game where they both really go off together and, and really put that punch in. Um, and like that Pelicans game was much closer than it needed to be. And I was looking at KD in the fourth quarter was really not taking the shots that I would have expected him to take. Um, yeah. It's, it's. I mean, like, I, I think that some of it is just, they've had a pretty, like, we don't need to ignore it. There's been some weird things going on with the Nets uh, to start this season that they're dealing with. So <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, that's part of it. And Look, actually, you know, this is, I'm interested to hear about what your thoughts are. If Harden is, you know, reduced a little bit, like so, he's an elite player, obviously, like yeah. say he's an all-star level player versus like an MVP caliber player, but without Kyrie, like, like I mean, for you as a Nets fan and, you know, just as a data person, is that, I mean, how, how do you feel then about like the Nets championship odds? Because to me, like, I thought even without Kyrie, if Harden was, the Harden we've seen that they were still the championship favorites. And I know that they're on a nice run right now. They've won like what, seven in a row, whatever it is. Um, but like I, without, 
Kyrie and with Harden, what I've seen of him this year, like I would be, I feel like it's a lot closer now than, than it would have been even without Kyrie. So yeah, I will agree with you. If this is the Harden that stays, I will say, I think Harden is being very intentional right now about not doing some of the things that he will be doing later in the season. I think he's definitely spending some time, especially earlier, and now he's doing less and less of it, testing the waters just with the new rules and stuff. I know PD, uh, PD made a post about that where he was kind of referencing four, four or five different actions where it, it seemed pretty clear that Harden was looking, am I going to get a call for this action? Um, so by no means do I I, I, I don't think that's any uh, defense for his poor start. Like, you can test the rules and still be efficient in other ways. And I think that oftentimes that got in his head, he, he complained a little too much and I still don't see anything off ball that I like to see. I mean, he's taken the most catch and shoots in his career this year. And there's still just like way too few, very many times he's getting an open shot and he's getting better with that though. Um, so yeah, all of that to say, I think Harden is intentionally going slow right now, which is obviously the answer you push back on in terms of just his, his hammy and stuff. And I personally do have faith that we will see the James Harden we are used to seeing by the end of this regular season. If he does not come back to that level of performance, I don't see us being the same level of championship contender. I do think that Kevin Durant alone makes us a strong contender in the East, especially, but I mean, the heat, the heat are a bit scary to me. Jimmy Butler is doing things that are are, are pretty strong on both ends of the court. I think they're Uh, a really bad matchup for Brooklyn, actually. Yeah, the the Heat are definitely the team that I'm the most scared about as it currently stands. The Bucks, I mean, we I think I just, you just have to give them respect based on what they did last year, regardless of how bad they look this year. Um, and and to me, they look awful this year. The Bucks have not looked good at all. Yeah, so been I, bad. I, I and I, I there's also like like a lot of weird stuff going on with them, right? Like yeah, I'm just gonna blindly like, believe that Milwaukee will turn it around by the end of the year, and I'm pretty sure that's a relatively safe bet. Um, so yeah, but no, the Heat like are to slowly me slowly picking it up too. Yeah, yeah. The Heat to me are, are the scariest team right now besides uh like besides Brooklyn and, and Milwaukee. Like that's the team I I pick to make it out of the East if it's not one of those two. And I mean I can't say because 'cause I'm a Nets fan, but I'll take Miami over Milwaukee right now. Not Brooklyn though. <laughs> uh, uh no, logically speaking, Milwaukee's obviously played a, a a really strong band of basketball up until now. Yeah. I'm I'm still a little skeptical of Miami just because like I mean, look, like, ultimately, when to win championships, you need that top-end MVP-caliber type of player. And, like, as nice as Phoenix's run was last year to the finals, um, that was ultimately the difference. Like, you know, Milwaukee had... And, yeah, my, I, I'm with you, and my pushback there will be, I think Jimmy is a good step up above anyone that Phoenix had. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess, like, I'm just... For me, I watch them, and I'm like... I don't know. I, I just like, I've always just watched, I just feel like I, it's, it's very, I don't think offense is easy for them. It's probably the best way to put it. And I feel like when the Nets need a bucket, they always have the option of just like, give it to KD and he'll pull up on literally anybody in the world and he can create a shot that's like, what, like at, at worst, like a 50% value proposition for him. Um, Definitely at worst. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then like, you know, Milwaukee can just, I do think like I do think like Giannis can get to a level where he's just like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna take this game over now. And like we've seen that. And I know Jimmy had that bubble run. Um I'm a bubble I'm a bubble skeptic. You heard it here first. I dismiss the bubble. Um 
And I know that's Jimmy's fine. Still, I'm with you on that. I'm with you. I'm on still that. J- Jimmy's very good. Very, very good. Um, I just, I can't get out of my head watching him in the playoffs last year. And like the disdain with which yes. the Milwaukee treated him. I just can't get that out of my head. No. Yeah. And that's fair. Uh, the, the, and I am also a relative bubble skeptic. Jimmy's performance was really special, but the thing that gives me faith in him overall is what he did with uh, Philly years mm-hmm. before that. Mm-hmm. Um, he was their guy. Like, like, that entire series pushing Toronto to seven was largely because of what Jimmy was bringing to the table, not just as a scorer, but both ends of the court and as a playmaker for the offense. Like that was the series where Ben Simmons really stepped into the power forward role and wasn't doing much on ball at all. And that's because Jimmy was so effective with the ball in his hands. Um, And I know Joel has said it like he openly wishes Jimmy was the one, not Jimmy was the one who stayed with the team, but he wishes that Jimmy stayed with the team. Uh, And I agree like that really would have changed the course of Philadelphia, I think. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a Jimmy guy. I'm a Jimmy apologist and I, I'm, uh, there, I, I hear what you're saying about the offense. Tyler Hero's playing really, really well right now. And it remains to be seen if he'll keep that up all year. Um, on the flip side, I think Lowry's underperforming slightly. Not that he's ever been the most efficient player, uh, especially in, uh, the past few seasons, but I do think we can expect a little bit of an uptick in Lowry's yeah. performance hell of a finish in the Clippers game which they lost like I heard about that yeah he was like one for eight through three and then eight or nine for ten in the fourth quarter and just dropping 20 points out of nowhere yeah he was making some bullshit too it was it was a pretty ridiculous performance um yeah yeah, uh, go ahead I had another question uh going back to the Knicks for a second um one thing that's been kind of talked about a lot so the Knicks um switched out to ostensibly or um, allegedly positive defensive presences for Evan Fournier and Kemba Walker. Um, we haven't really talked too much about the direct switch, but a lot of people are now hypothesizing that losing those two guys, Bullock and Payton, has been kind of the key uh, ingredient in the Knicks' lack of defensive success, particularly. Um, I, I'd be curious, Ron, based on what you're seeing both from have you well, have you watched the Knicks as well as in the data? Um, to what extent you would give credence to that uh, hypothesis? So yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I didn't watch as much of the Knicks last year, so I, I don't exactly know the like on court value that Bullock brought. I've obviously heard that it's been pretty strong, and uh, it, it seemed like he played a role. Uh, I don't think that it's that big a deal though. I think that RJ's in his slump, but as we saw in the first few games of the season, he can be that elite of a defender. And I just think the general level of uh, athleticism on the team is high enough to where you guys will be a, a, I think overall a fine defensive team. Uh, Again, I think like to me, 13, 14 games into the season, it's, it's like I said, kind of the danger zone because you feel like we, we know what the teams are and what the players are about, but it's really, I think, as small of a sample size as the first four games, especially when a team has the progression that the Knicks have had where you start hot and then get worse. Like if we just kind of flip the script and, you know, had this past week be the first week of the season and had the first week of the season be this past week, you know, the narrative and emotions are entirely different because it's trending upwards instead of downwards. Yeah. And I will say this, uh, the Knicks started last year five and eight. Games. And I mean, like the Hawks, the Hawks were not even in playoff relevant halfway through the season, or they were playoff relevant, but obviously not Eastern Conference final relevant. Yeah. And then and also this year is just weird. Like there's so many teams that are competitive. I think there's a huge middle class in the NBA that's like 
there's how many teams are actually to me yeah to me this is the deepest the east has been in a long long time i mean even when you go down to, like the wizards obviously they're not going to stay first in the league but i do think the wizards are relatively legit um, yeah i mean I they got all be... these fucking wings that they just have like yeah. like prez was really big on them before the season and, yeah i'm i'm loving montrez harrell so far this year i think he has an unnest uh, a little bit too low of a reputation and and his value goes a little bit i know people like to say he's more of that stat stuffer kind of guy but i, I do think he, he brings some on-court he, value and, and he's like a he's a really good regular season player i know that sounds like a bad that could, kind of that could be no that could be it sounds, but it's like it's like there are guys who like look there are guys the regular season is different than the playoffs. There are guys who can win you fully agreed in the DeRozan, regular season. Right? I mean, DeRozan was the quintessential version of that. Yeah, no, no, no. We'll absolutely. That changes this year, but yeah, it's not going to change. Um, he's the, he's and yeah, by no means am I going to say uh, Montrez Harrell is going to lead the Wizards past a <laughs> in, in, past a playoff victory. The the Montrez um, uh, <laughs> Montrez Harrell MVP campaign is going to be special. Oh yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> But yeah, no, uh, I'm a fan of what the Wizards are doing. Beal hasn't even been playing his best ball so far this year, and uh, they just have the pieces that I think can be uh, definitely... They're probably one of the teams I think are battling for those fringe top six spots, and they, they I think, could make it. Obviously, could fall into the play-in, though. Word. Uh, all right, Rohan. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, is there anything that you would like to plug before we get you out of here? Uh, no, I mean, I guess I'll just plug my Twitter again. It's Rohan Dang 19. Uh, you can follow me there. I have a link to my company's Twitter as well on that. We post a lot of stuff about just, you know, stats that are going on different trends throughout the season. As I kind of mentioned in the beginning of the pod, we were capturing data like all over the world, not just NBA and NCAA stuff. So definitely a lot of interesting things going on in our, in our socials. Uh, nice. I'm looking forward to, uh, crunching, uh, second division. Lithuanian ball soon. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> thanks a lot for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. Always, always fun to have you on. Um, Stacy, is there anything that you would like to plug for you out here? Uh, yeah, uh, I've plugged this a couple times, but um, we'll be starting a podcast uh, next week. We should be get off the ground, or the week after, uh, with Matthew Miranda uh, on Believe Sports. The name of the podcast will be Believe Knicks. And um, I'll be posting with that on my Twitter. So keep an eye out for that if you are interested in great Knicks takes and lots of rival pod on on my (laughs) podcast. That's not it's not a rival where we're growing the the, there's another, but you can get great takes and wisdom um, (laughs) and also me. But um, Matt Miranda will be on there, too. So if you want, as Schwinn mentioned, one of the OGs and the goats of Knicks Twitter, um, you should uh, definitely check it out. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Matthew is great. You're Stacy. Um, I got nothing to plug. Uh, I'm going to plug that uh, Michigan State fuck off. Uh, you suck ass, and I hope you lose. Yeah, how game. many How many yards is CJ Stroud throwing for next week? Like At 600. least 6,900 yards <laughs> next week. Uh, only week of the season where I root for the Buckeyes next week. Uh, and I'm going to plug... Uh, I'll give Jim Harbaugh some props for finally winning a fucking road game that mattered. Um, so shout out to him. And uh, also, um, sorry to all the Jets fans that had to watch the Bills absolutely embarrass them. Uh, better luck next time. Yeah, and, and fuck you to the Jets fans who got me to start Mike White today. It'd be two <laughs> point. I had Cam on the – well, Cam ended up fizzling out a little bit, but still would have been better. I had him on the bench, and I started White because everyone's like – He's the next goat. He had two point four points. Yeah, he was. Yeah, awful. I think he threw, threw like four picks or something. Yeah, he threw. He literally every single one 
every everybody in our secondary, our starting secondary, got a pick. Every single one. Very right. nice. <laughs> uh, it was, it. yeah, it was, it was bad. Um, but um, yeah, I enjoyed it. So anyway, that's it. I think. Uh, also, I will say this: I very much enjoyed a weekend of no Knicks games. It was very nice uh, to not give a shit about this team for a few days. Um, but I hope that they get back to winning ways tomorrow. They play the Pacers. That should be a fun game. Uh, cards on the table. I think the Knicks come out strong and, and win that game. Um, so, so it's his fault if they don't. Yes, exactly. Blame me. If the Knicks lose. Uh, I jinxed them. I always do. Uh, all right. That's our show for today. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, and uh, Rohan, again, thanks for coming on. I will see everybody 